Well, that is pretty cool. That's an amazing number. How about a hand for these people? This is just a fraction of the volunteers that are involved, and so we are so grateful, looking forward to a wonderful uh, week with Summer Blast and local missions experience. Uh, Good morning to all of you. My name is Ken. If I've not met you, I would love to do so at some point in time. I am the Connections Pastor here at Salem, which means I'm... uh, somewhat responsible for helping you get connected uh, for our hospitality ministries, for adult groups, that sort of thing. So would love to meet you personally. Uh, So grateful to be with you. Let me tell you about where we are headed uh, today. Uh, Today we start a sermon series titled, That We May Be One. Uh, For the next three Sundays, we will be going through John chapter 17, which is a prayer. It's actually the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in all of Scripture. And it's interesting because we know that Jesus prayed frequently, but the Gospels hardly ever tell us how or what he prayed. And so this is really a neat opportunity to see how Jesus communicates with the Father and what's on his heart. These are the final words Jesus spoke after the Last Supper, gathered in the upper room with his disciples before he would head down to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would receive the kiss of death from Judas, shortly thereafter be arrested, and then ultimately travel towards his crucifixion. Now, as we look at this particular passage, uh, John 17, most scholars will divide it in in three parts. The first part, John 1 through 17, 1 through 5, which we're going through today, is Jesus' prayer for himself. He's quite literally praying to the Father for himself. And then 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples, these guys gathered in the upper room with him. And then 20 through 26, uh, he's praying for future believers. He's praying for you and I. And so today we're just going to look, though, at the first portion. But while we teach on it later in the series, uh, the reason that this series is titled that that we may be one, is that Jesus not only models unity with the Father and his disciples, but he prays that you and I, followers of Christ, will be one. So John 17, verse 22, says this. This is part of Jesus' prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So his desire for you and I is that we will be one as he and the Father are one. Well, we just wrapped up our sermon series. If you've been with us since the beginning of the year, we went through Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah spends 40 years basically asking the Israelite people to repent. He, God gives them warning after warning. Like he loves them so much, he gives them every chance to respond to them. But we read there that their hearts just continually harden and they get further and further away from him. Well, in stark contrast to Jeremiah, uh, this passage of Scripture gives us a window into the heart of Jesus. Unlike any other passage in all four Gospels, it shows his love for the Father, his love for his disciples, and his love for us. Now, if you're not familiar with Jesus, uh, he started his earthly ministry at about the age of 30. 
And everything that we, or almost everything that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took place in a three-year period between the age of 30 and 33 years old for Jesus. During that time, Jesus had gathered 12 disciples, and he began teaching and leading, healing and correcting, resurrecting and restoring, loving and showing the ways of God to both Jewish and non-Jewish people alike. His message, the gospel, which means good news, is that he, Jesus, was the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Prince of Peace, who would save many from their sins, and to whom eventually every knee will bow. The deal is, though, that many of his followers expected an earthly king, someone to help Israel overthrow Rome, but Jesus' plan and his purpose was much larger than overthrowing the most powerful nation on planet earth at the time. His plan and his purpose instead was to bring salvation to all of humanity, to bring a different way of life, a way of life that's centered around love, love for God and love for others. But a price had to be paid first. A sacrifice had to be made. We're going to study John chapter 17, but this prayer is just a short part of what was a very long night. You see, this prayer was prayed the night that Jesus would be betrayed, the night that Jesus would share his last meal with his closest companions and most devout followers. This ragamuffin group of misfits who who would start the process of carrying his message, the good news, to all the ends of the earth. And as we read this passage, we're reminded that the world is a tremendous battleground where the forces under Satan's power and those under God's authority are at war. Satan and his forces are motivated by bitter hatred towards Christ and towards his followers. They want to bring him down and they want to bring us down. So Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples and he prays for his future followers, those that follow him today. And this was prayed on the eve of his crucifixion, the eve of his death. And it got me thinking, have you ever thought about, if if you knew you had 24 hours to live, And you could gather your loved ones around you, those most important to you. What would you say to them? What would you want them to know? For some reason, as I was thinking about that question, the men who stormed the beach at Normandy on D-Day in World War II came to mind. Knowing that as they landed on that beach and they got off those boats and they started to run across the sand towards the cliffs and hills, that there was a very good chance that they would be shot and killed or possibly step on a mine or be hit by mortar. And there was a very realistic chance that they would not survive another day. And I wondered, I wondered about the letters that they wrote the night before, sharing the thoughts that they did not want to take to the grave. Letters to their wives, letters to their kids, letters to their parents, their siblings, their friends. What would you write? What would you want to make sure was not left unsaid before your passing? 
But we're going to read John chapter 17, uh, 1 through 5, and I'll read all five verses to give you a bigger picture of what Jesus prayed, and then we're going to go, by it, go through it verse by verse. And if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as I read these five verses that Jesus spoke. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You may be seated. So John 17, 1 actually starts by giving us context. It starts with these words, when Jesus had spoken these words, he was referring to the last four chapters of John, where he'd been in this upper room. The last couple of hours they'd spent in the upper room with the disciples, where they had eaten the Last Supper, where he had shared with them what has become known as the farewell discourses of Jesus, his final words. Jesus and his disciples gathered for the Passover meal that night, celebrating Israel's deliverance from slavery from Egypt. Uh, but when the disciples and Jesus arrive, there is no one to presume the posture of a servant taking a knee and washing everyone's feet. So what happens? Jesus drapes a towel over his arm and he gets a pitcher of water, and one by one, he goes to each disciple getting on his knees and cleaning their dirty feet. And the Savior becomes a servant. A little later in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And, and I imagine they would have immediately thought of their rabbi taking a knee and washing each one of their feet. But they would reflect back on this same verse later and see it in light of the rugged cross. This same new commandment, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Then Jesus tells them that he must leave, which they don't understand. Like, what do you mean you've got to go somewhere? But he comforts them. He tells his disciples, saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. He reassures his disciples that your future is with me in my father's house. Then in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me, the way, the truth, the life. And then he promises to send the Holy Spirit. He says that 
He's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them and guide them and give them the words and remind them of what he said. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. He will serve as your advocate. He will put words in your mouth when you don't know what to say. And then he emphasizes the importance of remaining connected to him. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that produces or bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're trying to live this Christian life by our own power, by our own will, we'll fail. But if we tuck ourselves up under the wing of our loving God, we will bear much fruit. He says to remain connected to him. And then there's this transition that takes place. He calls his disciples friends for the very first time. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. This is a huge paradigm shift. He is no longer just their master, their rabbi, their teacher. He now calls them friends. He then teaches them to pray in his name in John 16, 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So the deal is, like, he lets them know that the going is going to be tough. That they, will meet, that they will weep and mourn while their enemies rejoice. But he also lets them know that there is hope that there will be victory. And he reassures them right before launching into this prayer. John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those are just some of the things that he spoke to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. So many important things while gathered in the upper room with those he'd chosen. And he was empowering them to carry his message to a dying world. Well, let's go back to John 17, verse 1. It continues, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. He, he turns his attention from his disciples, who are still there watching him, to his father. And notice that almost everything Jesus does, he does so with the disciples as witnesses. He is almost always discipling them. He is almost always modeling to them what faith in his father and what obedience and what it looks like to live out this life with him. And notice his prayer posture. He looks up to heaven. You know, he's modeled this before uh, when he was beside the grave of Lazarus and he was about to pray for his father to resurrect him and he looks up to heaven. And there's another time where he shares this parable of a tax collector who's remorseful and it says that he's so remorseful that he, he's unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven because he feels so much guilt. And so Jesus is modeling something here for us. And I got to wondering, like, you know, is this whole concept of lifting our eyes to heaven, is it something that has been taught and caught 
Or is it actually something that God has hardwired into us? When you see an awesome sunset or sunrise, do you lift your eyes to heaven? Or when you utter a prayer of despair, do you lift your eyes to heaven? Well, verse 1 continues, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He says, the time has arrived. The hour has come. You see, in, in John's gospel, he uses the phrase hour multiple times. Jesus talks about his hour for the very first time in John chapter 2, which was the wedding at Canaan. And there, the, the, the wedding party runs out of wine. And his mom says to him, Mary says, Jesus, you need to intervene. You need to do something. And what does he say? Woman, my hour has not yet come. But then what does he do? He helps out and he provides, turns water into wine. And then in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, there's two occasions where the religious elite want to arrest him and somehow he miraculously escapes and it says that his hour has not yet come. But then there's this transition that happens in chapter 12. As he prepares for the Last Supper, when he says, the time has, in fact, come. But notice that when his hour has finally come, his looming crucifixion, he doesn't use it as a reason to resign to fatalism, but instead as an incentive to increased prayer. Well, verse 1 continues, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. At first read, this feels a little narcissistic, doesn't it? Glorify me. Make me famous. Lift me up. I can't help but be reminded of the... Song Glory Days from Bruce Springsteen every time I read this passage. I was, grew up just a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. But just this past Friday, I guess I got to experience a little glory. Uh, this past Friday, I pl- played in the uh, Cooperstown Bible Camp uh, Golf Scramble, which is a fundraiser for them. And we played at the Mayville Golf Course, uh, which is nine holes. And we start off, and on the second hole, they've got a longest drive hole. And by the way, I was playing with Seth and Kent and Doug Johnson up there. And we're doing this primarily to provide money to Cooperstown, not for our own enjoyment at all, right? And so, uh, second hole, it's a par five, and it's the longest drive hole. And there's this huge tree right in the middle of the fairway. I'm like, what do you do? Do you hit around it? Like, what are you supposed to do? And Seth says, just swing away. You go up and over the tree. And so I'm like, sure. So I get up and I absolutely seed this drive. I hit it so hard. And by the way, I am not a long hitter. So this was, this was pretty cool. So I, I hit it. ends up in the fairway. I get out there and there's one of those signs, you know, that you put number one and I wrote Ken Boney and I put that thing in the fairway. I was feeling pretty good. Although I knew it wouldn't stand up because I'm just not that long of a hitter. So, again, this is a nine-hole course. Two and a half hours later, we come back to hole number six. And we all get up on the tee wondering a little bit, who's got the longest drive? And Seth hits this ball that he hits. It was kind of a draw, goes out over the tree, and he's like, ah, I didn't hit that very well. 
And so we go up, and I'm going, gosh, it looks like that's where I left my marker. Sure enough, my name's still on it. For two and a half hours, I had the longest drive. And then I look down the fairway about 30 yards, and there's Seth's drive 30 yards further. And I'm like, oh, you didn't hit it very well. (laughs) And my glory immediately diminished. But you know, you know what glory's like. It's the time when you won that big game or you got the best score on the test or you're the top salesperson in your company or you got first chair in the orchestra. But what Jesus was saying was much different. He doesn't ask for glory for his own sake or for fame. What does he say? He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says, show them me so that I can show them you. Help them see all that I really am so that I can show them all of who you really are. And the Old Testament makes it clear that God will not give his glory to another. So Jesus sharing in the Father's glory implies that he is, in fact, God as well. Well, Verse 2 continues. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. When he prays over all flesh, he, he means all people, over all humankind, men and women. God the Father gave Jesus authority over every person on planet earth. All of creation, which was in fact Jesus' creation. And, and then in what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28... It's Jesus says these words, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Jesus has been given authority over all humans by the Father to give eternal life to all who would follow him, all who would put their faith and trust in him. But, but it was an eternal life without a cost. It was an eternal life at the cost of a loving, perfect life sacrifice, a sacrifice that the one with all authority, Jesus, chose to make out of love for you and for me by going to a cross. Jesus brings glory to the Father by giving eternal life to all that the Father has given him. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. What does it mean to know God? You know, the Hebrew notion of knowing actually encompasses experiences and intimacy. And for Christ followers, that means obedience and love for God, but it means living in fellowship with God. And we frequently talk about a relationship with Jesus, don't we? But we don't very often talk about a relationship with the Father. And that's exactly what we're being invited into here, a relationship with the Father, fellowship with the Father. But perhaps you had or have an earthly father that makes you struggle to believe that you could have a perfect, loving relationship with God the Father. If that's the case for you, I am so sorry, because I know it makes it so hard. I mean, we are all broken people, but some of us are more broken than others. And as they say, hurt people 
hurt people. But I still beg you to give this father a chance. Get to know this father father, who created you, who loves you, who gifted you, who wants the best for you, and who sacrificed all so he could be in relationship with you. Uh, John chapter 1 verse, or chapter 5, 1 John 5 verse 20 echoes this when he writes, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. But it's not enough to just believe that Jesus is who he says he is. After all, Satan knows who Jesus is, but he refuses to follow him. He doesn't have a relationship with him. As a matter of fact, he is fighting him and he's fighting us all of the time. But God the Father invites you into a relationship with him. He invites you to follow his ways because he knows his ways are the best ways for each one of us. And the deal is that eternal life does not begin the day you die, but the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You see, the kingdom comes the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit starts to reside in you and take up residence in your being. Well, Jesus continues his prayer in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How did Jesus glorify God? By pointing all people to him, by healing the hurting, by teaching his ways, by showing his love, by sacrificially being obedient to him in all things, and by giving his life for his Lord and for us. Back in John uh, chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says this, My food is that I might do the will of the one, the Father who sent me, and complete his work. How do you and I glorify God? How do we glorify God? It's really a big question, isn't it? It's pretty heady. I think much of the answer can be found simply in the great commandment which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Great Commission, right, to to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them all things. It's loving one another. But I'll tell you what, as you think about what glorifies God, think about forgiveness. I think every time I forgive someone, It glorifies God. I think every time I ask someone for forgiveness, it glorifies God. I think every time you forgive yourself, which may very well be the hardest thing to do, it glorifies God. You know, we bring glory to God when we offer compassion to the hurting. We see a need and we meet it. We bring glory to God when we choose to use kind words to lift others up. We bring glory to God when we share his love and his ways with others. And does your life glorify God? If not, 
What steps do you need to take or changes do you need to make? Or have you thought about how the little things in life can glorify God, how you can bring glory to him by simply just following what he says and loving other people? I mean, it's amazing what will bring glory to God. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Think about what Jesus had to sacrifice to save us. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He was in perfect, harmonious, loving community with the Father and the Spirit. He was in the glory of heaven. And yet he chose to leave all of that to come into to our broken earth, our broken world, to live in the midst of sin and death, to confront obstinate people, to right wrong thinking, to show us love, the love of the Father, and to give us a pathway back to a restored relationship with God through the ultimate sacrifice of death on a cross on our behalf. The book of John, the Gospel of John, starts by saying in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, the Word is Jesus, and He chose to leave the throne room of God and enter into our mess to show us the Father and to save us from our sins. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh, the incarnation, and dwelt among us like He chose to dwell with us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He chose to dwell among us, and Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth must be key components of God's glory. And then the the New Testament book of Hebrews, referring to Jesus and talking about his glory, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then in Colossians, uh, Paul writes in Colossians 1 15 and 19, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, I'm going to take a risk here and try to do an object lesson with you. Now, Seth is very good at illustrations, but I may fall on my face, so bear with me, okay? So... I frequently will talk about uh, the image of God. That's a, imago Dei is a Latin phrase, and, and where it comes from is Genesis 1, verse 26, where we read that you and I were created in the image of God. Men and women were created in the image of God. So as followers of Jesus, anytime we look in a mirror, we actually see a reflection of the image of God. As you look at yourself, if you're a follower of Christ, you see a reflection of the image of God. But conversely, when we look at Jesus, he's the invisible image of God. And for him, it's like looking through a window. When you look at him, you see God. And so Jesus serves as the invisible image of God. 
Now, when I first started preparing this message, I kept looking for application, how we can apply these five verses to our lives. What should we do with this prayer, these words of Jesus? And then it dawned on me, or maybe Seth said it in the meeting. (laughs) This is less about what you should do and more about what you should know. You should know that Jesus and the Father had a perfect relationship eternally existing for the benefit of the other, striving to glorify one another. The relationship between Jesus and the Father is what he's inviting us into, a perfect, loving relationship. These first five verses of this prayer give us an incredible window into the perfect relationship Jesus had with the Father, how they live for one another, And turning his face to the Father, Jesus asked that his journey back to his Father might begin. So I want to read these five verses again, just thinking, and I want to invite you, as I do, to think about this perfect relationship that Jesus and the Father had. And I want to ask you to close your eyes as I read this passage one more time. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He honors his father much like we might honor our mother or father or a spouse or a dignitary. And said, Father, the hour has come. He obediently acknowledges his time and purpose. The hour has come for him to painfully pay our debt. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says, glorify your son. Help me complete the task and lift me up on the cross so that I can bring glory to you, Father. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, my authority is from you, Father, for all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And I am ready to do What is required to restore the relationship of our creation, this people, to you and I? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Father, I want them to know you, your love, your ways, your power, your reign, and to know Jesus Christ and to know me, Father, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. I lived to lift you up. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, I have obediently and willingly and gladly done the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now help me complete this task so that I can return to you to the glory we shared together. Amen. A Bible scholar, N.T. Wright, says, when you make this prayer your own, when you enter in this chapter and see what happens, you are being invited to come into the heart of that intimate relationship with Jesus and the Father and have it, so to speak, happen all around you. You and I are invited into this perfect relationship with the Father and the Son, and while it will never be completely perfect while we walk this earth. He who began a good work in you will carry it out until completion. Well, there may be no better way to reflect on this perfect sacrificial relationship than by celebrating communion together. 
Communion is when we celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, his body broken, his blood spilled to cover all of our sins, to pay a price that we could not pay. The sacrificial, spotless Lamb of God going to the altar on our behalf. I'd like to invite the communion servers forward to collect the elements. Now, for all of you, communion is one of two sacraments recognized by our church. It's a holy endeavor. It's a time of pausing. It's a time of thankfulness, but it's also a time of repenting and praying. We reflect on what Jesus did the very next day after this prayer in John 17. You don't have to be a member of Salem to participate in communion, uh, but this is reserved for those of you who would identify yourself as a follower of Christ, who have made him Lord of your lives. And when the elements do come to you, there are two cups. Be sure and grab both. One has the juice on top and the bread underneath. Uh, If you would like a gluten-free option, you can connect or raise your hand and Pete will bring that to you. Now, if you don't consider yourself to be a Christ follower, no worries. Feel free to let the trays pass you by, and we invite you to just ponder. Ponder why millions and millions of people all over planet Earth participate in this practice, participate in this sacrament of consuming this bread and remembering the broken body, of drinking from the cup and remembering the blood spilled. On our behalf, please pass the elements. You came from heaven's throne, acquainted with our sorrow.
disciples took part in the Last Supper for the very first time, they had very little idea what they were doing and the significance. And as we look back upon this and we look at the events that unfolded in that upper room, then we look at the prayer of Jesus and the sacrifice he ultimately made on a cross for each and every one of us, it's like the importance of this meal just grows and grows. It's so important. So Jesus, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he has given thanks, every time I read that word, he had given thanks. I mean, it's crazy to think that our Lord was about to go to the cross, about to be flogged. He knew what was coming, and yet he gave thanks because he knew that it would restore our relationship with him, that it would wipe out sin in our lives. And he actually gave thanks, and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, in the same way, also, he took the cup after saying, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together.
Uh, Father, as we immerse ourselves in this prayer of John 17, it's almost impossible to imagine a relationship where two people, and we'll make it three with the Holy Spirit, love one another so much that they would do anything to glorify the other that they would give of their lives, that, they would, that Jesus would step off the throne and enter into our mess, and that he would pay a price that we can't really even begin to fathom. So God, my prayer for each and every person in this room and online is that we would know that this perfect loving relationship that you have that was mutually beneficial, that was sacrificial, that was overwhelmingly loving and great, that that is available for each and every one of us and that we would grow in understanding of how much you love us, how big this sacrifice was and how much you just want this restored relationship with us, for us to know love in ways that we have never known them, for all the shame and the guilt to be wiped away, and for us to have hope and a future in you. I pray that for each person. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.